This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Will Elon Musk ruin Twitter edition? It's Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. On today's show, Elon Musk, the Tesla baron and world's richest man, now owns Twitter. How will it change? What's he going to do? What does radical free speech mean precisely? And uh, if it means what we think it does, should you quit or stay and fight the fight? We're going to run through it. And then After Sun, all one word, S-U-N, is the new movie starring Paul Mescal, the very unmanic jockey dream hunk from the Hulu Normal People adaptation. Here he plays a loving but ultimately very dark young man, a father to an 11-year-old daughter on the verge of adolescence. Uh, It's the first feature film from Charlotte Wells. And uh, finally, Brangelina is the subject of a smashing piece of cultural reporting and criticism from Angelica Jade Bastian. She joins us to talk about it. But first, of course, I'm joined by Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. How are you? Good. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens, who's the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey. All right, before we go any further, Julia, let me throw it to you for a couple of sentiments about the show. Yeah, I have sentiments about the show. We love doing the show. We love talking to you guys every week. We've been doing it now for nearly 15 years. It'll be 15 years in April, I think, which is wild. And we're coming to you as we periodically do to ask you, if you enjoy this show, please rate and review it in whatever platform you are using to listen to it. They all have different mechanisms. I think Apple is one of the biggest. Spotify is on the rise. Uh, But when you engage with and publicly profess your fandom of our show in that way, it helps more people discover the show. So please take a moment, like us, profess your love and listenership, and we will be eternally grateful. All right. Thanks, Julia. Let's, uh, Let's make a show. Let's do it. All right. Well, one crazy saga has ended and another begins, the story of American life in general, but very much the story of Twitter. This past April, Elon Musk offered to buy the social media platform for roughly 52 bucks a share. Twitter accepted the deal. By July, Musk wanted to bail. There ensued a, you know, legal wrangling and a game of chicken that's culminated in Musk buying it for 44 billion. He now owns it, uh, our, many people believe, default public square. And he's brought to it the promise of radical free speech. We'll find out what that means. Uh, But immediately he began making substantive changes, some quiet, some loud. Change to the homepage, I think is a fairly quiet one, but he fired top execs with hints of mass firings to come. There was an immediate surge uh, in hate speech on the site, as I understand it, anti-Semitic in particular. And now Musk promises to shift to a subscription revenue stream, at least partially, charging 20 bucks a month for verified status. Raises so many questions. Dana, I'm going to start with you because you're the most Twitter adept and prolific of the three of us, if nobody minds me saying. You going to quit? You know, this is such a live question to me. It's been a while since we talked about something on the podcast that is as directly impacting my thoughts at that moment as the the question of what's going on with Twitter, what's going to happen to it, whether to quit. In fact, yesterday, my brother, who is who is only on Twitter basically to follow me, I think, he has a profile that he barely uses, wrote me a, a long text entreating me to quit and just saying, I just don't see conscionably how anybody stays on this site. And, you know, that that Elon Musk's tweet about Paul Pelosi, you know, the kind of now deleted piece of uh, misinformation that he tweeted about that over the weekend, basically announcing, you know, here's what I'm going to be doing with my new toy is lying on it, right? That that alone was reason to quit the site. And uh, anyway, he made he made a good case. And I think that like a lot of journalists and critics I know who use the site as kind of a workspace water cooler, I am hanging back and waiting to see what happens. I think the counter argument that one could make and that I sort of made to my brother while saying, you know, I'm just sort of in a holding pattern seeing what's going on, is that to, to desert the site is is just to hand it over, you know, to the trolls. It's, it's the closest thing we have to some sort of digital public square at the moment for better and worse, right? And 
a part of me feels just personally resentful at the idea that what is essentially my my break room, you know, just gets to be taken over by Nazis and dipshits. Like what, they can just walk in and say, this is ours now? I mean, also, as far as what sort of an ethical relationship we should have to the billionaires who own, you know, everything now in the in the public sphere, um, that's a pretty broad open question. I mean, I and many other people stayed on Twitter throughout Trump's entire administration when he was arguably doing way more to spread misinformation and lies than Elon would be capable of doing, right, as the president of the United States. And, you know, whatever, we give money to Jeff Bezos, even though we may disagree with his handling of his wealth. We are all feudal subjects of Mark Zuckerberg, whether we're on Facebook or not, because of all the harvesting that they're doing of everyone's data. So there's a lot of ethical questions bound up in that. And while I see the satisfaction of storming off Twitter in a huff to make a point, I would also lose a following that I've spent over a decade building up and it is the place I share work and read other people's work and generally participate in public life. Yeah. I mean, Julia pivoting to you, I mean, Nazis and dipshits have a long history of appropriating the total cultural space. They're totalitarians. It's their announced and unannounced goal. Um, it's an interesting question that the, the theorist Alberto Hirschman said that in the face of such incursions, um, people have three choices, exit, voice, and loyalty, right? So voices, you stay and you talk and you counter and you argue back and you don't deoccupy the public space that people like Dana have kind of semi-heroically carved out for themselves. Uh, you exit, you're like, I mean, my, the only the only dignified use of my agency is to leave. And of course, loyalty is out of the question. These are low life thugs you don't give into them um julia where on that spectrum do you think you might fall oh i'm so interested in how we all feel about this because elon musk is particularly identifiably detestable but what i am not yet sure of is whether his particular management of this social media platform which is because it is the one that is most about words and most for journalists is the one that i have the most personal relationship with whether his particular detestability is going to materially affect the platform and even this thing about like oh you're going to get charged 20 dollars to keep your verified blue check mark i will say it right here i don't think that's going to happen like maybe it'll happen, but the the whole story of Elon Musk acqu acquiring Twitter has been, I'm going to acquire it. No, I don't want to acquire it. Okay, I guess I have to. Fine, I'll do it. Okay, I'm going to fire everybody. Oh, I'm not firing everybody. Uh, never mind. Like, <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. If if um, if he does any of the things he professes to do, and if the platform becomes materially worse or different or doesn't change at all, so I I don't feel a particular moral compunction to quit in a huff. I will quit, you know, and I've already, I'm already much less engaged with tweeting than I was two or four or six years ago, um, probably because the platform itself seems to be flagging a little bit as a centerpiece of uh, a place for human conversation. And um, that's part of the reason that it was in the trouble that led it to be bought by Musk in the first place. Uh, if it gets much worse, maybe I will desist. If not, I will stick around. Um, but I don't feel a need to make a decision based on my moral evaluation of Musk the man. Mm, okay. Well, let me make a case for uh, exit then. Um, so a, a number of years ago, I, I quit Twitter. I, it, it was appealing to the very worst part of me, that part of me that's addictive, you know, procrastinatory um, and, you know, sort of envious, you know, of other people's ability to publicly self-fashion and monetize it. And it was just a self-belittling act to go back to it over and over and over again. And I quit and never looked back. Within about 48 hours, the addiction had cured itself and I never gave it a second thought. I very, very quietly, I mean, really all but totally anonymously rejoined in the immediate days after the Putin invasion, because I felt as though that was obviously the place to get a way more boots on the ground and hour by hour um, account of what was happening in Ukraine. And I expanded only to 45 followers. And I never had any intention of tweeting and didn't. I haven't tweeted or liked or asserted my presence in any way. As soon as the purchase was completed, I quietly quit. 
And I'll tell you why. I agree that exit and voice uh, are both viable options and a powerful case can be made for both. That said, you know, yes, there's this horrible ubiquity of um, of the tech barons, these hyper-libertarian, invariably white middle-aged men who control what effectively is the mental economy of the globe now. Um, there are all kinds of options to exit. I am not on, I quit WhatsApp. I'm off of Facebook. Uh, I've never been on Instagram. Um, I'm now off of Twitter and I try very hard not to accede to the conveniences of Amazon. And um, uh, by and large, I choose not to give them my money. As to staying and not letting the dipshits and the Nazis rule the public space, the flip side of that is these people thrive on one thing rhetorically. It's central to their grift. It's central to their narcissistic personality disorder. And it's central to the toxic creep of their politics. They need us. They need the libtard. They are nothing without the libtard. And I think actually exit has a special power in this situation. You're saying actually watch what happens to this as our default quote unquote public space when we're no longer here. It does both things. Not only does it inflame them in the short run and then defang them eventually. I mean, not in any large way, in any large sense. They can be fought other ways though. Um, but it, it, what it will also do is demonstrate for the millionth time that one of these sites comprised entirely of right-wing trolls and racists and anti-Semitic monsters is not a public space in any meaningful sense of the word and is a dead end as a business model and a dead end for their business model. They are trying to enact a public burlesque, right, daily of effigying and burning the libtard and then having the libtard react and then doing it again and again and again, lather, rinse, repeat. And I'm out. I, I mean, I can't withstand it for a lot of reasons that may be more linked to my fragility, you know, psychic fragility. But I, I and I see the dignity of staying, but I just wonder, Dana, do you accord me uh, a similar dignity <laughs> uh, in my choice to exit? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, in a way, I think the, the, the probably the more ethically rigorous thing to do is just say, I want nothing to do with this company. And, you know, there's plenty of other companies that one could say that about with, with equal righteousness. And I mean, one thing I do know, this week happens to be the week that the last changes are due for my book before the paperback comes out next February. So I'm submitting those changes today. And one thing I'm doing is that I'm taking my Twitter handle off my bio. I'm just taking off the sentence that says, you can follow her on Twitter at the high sign. And by doing that, I may be costing myself some future followers, but I don't know in February of 2023 when my book comes out what Twitter will be and whether that's a sentence that I want to say about myself. Mm, per perfectly fair, all of that. Um, Julia, can, let's wrap with you maybe if that's all right. I really want to hear you speak to Twitter's unique status as a kind of public square. And it, does that make it irreplaceable in some sense? I mean, is democracy net-net just further crippled if we flee the Nazis and the dipshits? I mean... Nazis and dipshits have been a feature of American life from the very beginning. And the thing that is difficult to parse, I think, is how our changing media environment elevates and amplifies those tendencies in the American psyche versus how much they just render them visible in a way that they weren't necessarily visible when they weren't appearing on primetime news shows and three main networks controlled the, the major flow of information and your conspiracy theories and uh, white supremacy were confined to, you know, weird alternative late night radio and strange pamphlets circulated through the mail, right? And I think it is not accurate to say that these platforms merely render these forces visible. They do seem to encourage and amplify them. Um, but uh, a thing I've been thinking about lately is the degree to which Twitter was ever a public square or whether it was merely the illusion of a public square for a certain set of people who are extremely invested in it. Elon Musk among them, right? I mean, Matt Levine, who's uh, the always essential financial newsletter writer at Bloomberg, 
has been an absolute poet and bard of this whole godforsaken transaction. And if you're not reading Matt Levine, you should change your life right now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, his main theory is that Elon just loves using Twitter. That's how he got into this mess and started wanting to buy it at all. Um, and so for the types of people who are not famous because they're movie stars like Angelina Jolie, but who have some public profile and desire to discuss and debate, it did and does create a forum for that discussion. But there are just millions and millions of people who've been tuning it out all along. Um, and I, I think I've been wondering is whether the illusion of a public square is maybe more dangerous than not having one at all. Um, and one thing that's really interesting, I think, about TikTok and its rise as a kind of catchment for American, you know, idle time attention is that TikTok is famously extremely different person to person. Of course, that was true of Twitter too, that your experience of Twitter is totally determined by who you follow. But somehow TikTok seems to more clearly represent and signal the media environment that we're now in, which is that everybody's in their own ecosystem and universe and there is no common space. Twitter somehow more gave the illusion of there being a common space when in fact it was just as fractured. So, um, you know, so I'm not sure that we are losing a beautiful town square. Um, I think the times when Twitter felt most like the town square actually were when Trump was president and was on there and was using it as a, uh, a major vector of official communication for the U S government. And I think, it's good that that's no longer true. And we'll see whether both of those things remain true, that he's not president and he's not on Twitter. They could both change. Oh, God help us. All right. Well, that's that's my thoughts on Twitter as a public square for journalists and others. I mean, the one thing I would say as a as a button is that I think one line in the sand for me is if Trump gets back on, if, if Trump gets back on, Elon lets him on and all of that madness starts again that was happening during the Trump administration. I mean, at the time, it's sort of especially during the pandemic and during lockdown felt necessary to be there just to police what was going on. But I can't take that level of stress anymore. And I would almost definitely be out if that voice is allowed back on again. Oh, my gosh, a binding public promise to quit if Trump is admitted back onto Twitter. Data Stevens, <laughs> I'm here to hold your feet to that fire. Uh, <laughs> let me say before we go, I there's a sort of bard of Twitter and Musk that I want to shout out as well at The Verge, Nile uh, Patel. Uh, Nile Patel, I don't know how to pronounce his first name. Welcome to hell, Elon. He's one of the founders of The Verge. Just He is so tremendously good. You fucked up real good, kiddo, is line one of his piece, Welcome to Hell, uh, Elon. I really recommend it. I thought it that was... That is a good one. That's a fabulous piece. All right, guys. Uh, this is one of those things, listeners... I mean, we mean it when we say it, like, shoot us an email, we want to hear, but, you know, you're going to quit, you're going to stay. Um, where where are your lines in the sand drawn? Shoot us an email. Okay, moving on. All right, now is the moment on our podcast we discuss business. Dana, what, uh, what do we have? Stephen, our only item of business this week is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're answering a question from a listener. We've been on a good roll of getting listener questions lately. This week, a listener named Shepard writes in to ask... What is a film that would be improved if two actors in it switched roles? And he says, for example, as much as I love The Devil Wears Prada, I contend that it would be an even better film if Anne Hathaway played the snobbish veteran assistant and Emily Blunt played the out-of-her-depth newcomer. Hathaway is always delicious as a villain or villain-ish, and Blunt's charm and range would, I'd argue, make us root even harder for the Andy character. He winds up by saying, I would love to hear the panel's thoughts on other hypothetical casting swaps and why they'd improve the film. This is a great question. Once I saw The Devil Wears Prada that way, I couldn't unsee it. And so if you're a Slate Plus listener, you can hear Julia, Steve, and I riff on our own thoughts about casting switches we would make in movies that already exist. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear that at the end of today's show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. After Sun is the first feature film from Charlotte Wells. It stars Paul Mescal as Colum, a 30-ish young man. I think he's turning 31 in the course of the movie, who's dreamy, semi-absent, and we come to believe very troubled for reasons mostly, if not entirely, unspecified. But he's also a warm and often very present and attentive father to Sophie. 
He takes his 11-year-old daughter to a beach vacation in Turkey. Um, this is a memory film. It comes out of that vacation. Um, we have a framing device. Sophie is a young woman with a baby of her own, clearly reminiscing. I mean, it's very impressionistic, almost pointillistic, reminiscing intently about her father. Um, the vacation is pregnant with significance, both dark and light. In addition to Mescal, the movie stars the remarkable Frankie Corio as young Sophie. Okay, in the clip we're about to hear, it's this is part of the framing device. It's actually artfully done. It's um, it's Sophie at 11 filming her dad, Colm, with a video camera. And the viewer sees and hears everything the camera is capturing. It gets toyed with later in the movie in interesting ways. But anyway, let's, let's have a listen. <laughs> oh my God, what even is that? These are my moves. Oh, that's so embarrassing. That's not embarrassing. Wait, I was going to interview you. Are you aware? Where are you? What were you going to interview me about? I don't know. Well? Well, I just turned 11, and you are 130, turning 131 in two days. So, when you were 11, what did you think you would be doing now? Hello? What did you think you would be doing now? Well, so turn it off now, okay? Dana, let me start with you. I mean, that's this is a movie that's deep in reverie, highly personal movie. Um, even though it's not autobiographical, Charlotte Wells has said, it's just... It's, saturated with the real feelings and real life of these two people and the slice of life that we see of their life that we see that clip is so perfect because it not only gives us that remarkable young actress who's at the center of it just how candid and fresh she is but it gives you the light and dark of paul and shows you how deftly and subtly it's gestured to i mean that tone change right there what'd you make of this movie I mean, okay, this movie, first of all, let me start off with the good things. I absolutely agree. The connection between the father and the daughter, between Paul Mescal and Frankie Corio as actors, and between those two characters is completely what drives the movie. It's a really intimate, there's essentially no characters, right, outside of them. You briefly hear them talking on the phone to her mother, who he's estranged from, but you don't hear the mother's voice or see her, learn anything about why they're estranged, or really learn anything about anyone else at the, at the resort. They're just backdrop for this relationship of those two characters. So all of that, wonderful, the subtlety, the specificity, etc. But I have to say that overall, I went to this movie wanting so much to love it and loving so many moments in it, and at the end came out pretty frustrated. And I think that if I were writing a review of this movie, it would probably get the, the dreaded green asterisk on Rotten Tomatoes, in spite of all the things that I would genuinely praise about it, because... I mean, here's, a, here's an adjective that applies to the movie in both good and bad senses. It's diaphanous. You know, it's this very delicate, fragile, um, you know, elusive, opaque kind of movie in ways that can be wonderful, but they can also be so ambiguous that quite literally at the end, when we cut back to the adult Sophie and she's having this somewhat dreamlike encounter with her father, right? There's this recurring image of the two of them dancing together in a nightclub with strobe lights where he is still the age that he was, you know, 31 or whatever at the, at the Turkish resort where most of the movie takes place, but she is an adult. So clearly this is a kind of fantasy space where she's dancing with this vision or memory of who her dad was. And I kept on waiting in those scenes to sort of understand like, what is she coming to terms with? What was her dad depressed about? What happened after the vacation such that it's implied that they never saw each other again, right? There's a moment when they're dancing and it's, it's a beautiful moment. They're dancing to David Bowie's Under Pressure at the resort on their last night at the resort. And we're led to believe that this is going to be the last time that they will see each other. But why? I guess a, a part of me wanted to cut through that ambiguity and just say, can we please have the script, Charlotte Wells' actual script, understand a little bit more about these characters than the 11-year-old understands about her father? Because otherwise, it's a densely detailed character portrait of a character, Paul Mescal's character, that we don't really understand. Mm. Uh, uh, Julia, uh, Dana's point is well taken. I mean, this movie is subtle and if you feel one way about it that's its triumph if you feel another way you're going to think it's subtle to a fault 
Julia, I'm curious what you made of that and and the reticence of the movie, its reluctance to just sort of tell you uh, expositionally what brought Paul to what appears to be his depression and its reluctance to give you any specific outcome to Paul after this vacation, even though I think most viewers will be led to suspect the worst. What do you think of this movie? I'm so interested that Dana didn't go for the diaphanosity of it. Um, <laughs> I, I went for it. I, and I here's my defense of why. It is true that the movie is frustratingly unexplanatory about what the heck was going on with her dad and what happened to him afterwards. And the reason that worked for me is that the film doesn't quite seem to be about Paul Meskel's character column. It's about the problem slash act of understanding that in addition to being your parents, your parents were people too. Um, And I think the fact that the fantasy space is this club, right, is the sort of moment, uh, this, this environment of being young and free and feeling full of kind of possibility and, ab- and bodily abandon. And, you know, it, it, your, what your parents did in the nightclub, right, is about as far from, from how you comprehended them as kids, no matter what kind of childhood you had. It's like the thing in kindergarten where you realize your teacher doesn't just like sleep on a cot at the school and they go home and have another life. Like, <laughs> I think it's not an accident that it's this moment of adult abandon and possibility and potential and um, that that is the place where she is trying to find and imagine her lost father. Um and and he's lost in some fashion. It's true that we don't know what or why. And the fact that she can't quite get the answer, it feels to me, is the point of the film. Now, of course, she does presumably know what the fuck happened. Like, he he wasn't, like, you know, raptured up to heaven, presumably. Like, something happened to him. He's no longer in her life. We don't know why or what. Um, and she knows more about why or what than we do, which is maybe part of what feels frustrating. Like you could imagine a film that explained what happened to him and still used really interesting filmmaking techniques to capture the texture of trying to reexamine your childhood memories for hints of the actual person that was buried in the father figure that you are remembering. Um, but the withholding of the film, I think, heightens that sense of wondering and re-examining, and I don't know, it just totally worked for me. Mm, yeah, this uh, I, I agree with you, Julia. This movie, it's elusiveness, it's diaphany, it's it's all of that is wonderful. And I think, for the record, Colum does ascend to heaven, but because he's played by Paul Mescal, he raptures it. But uh, that was a joke. But anyway, I <laughs> he, 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 I could spend. Two hours watching Paul Mescal read the phone book. He's so dreamy. He's so fabulous. And he's, as in normal people, he's so good at holding what feels like a immense depression within him as he acts something that is not explicitly about despair or feeling of being lost. Um, and he, without overplaying it, it just seems in, in, almost intrinsic to his capacity as a performer to do that and what i loved about the movie as a chronically depressed person who has loved being a father and kind of i've lived this dance from the inside in some sense and it was kind of amazing to see it where if you were holding yourself totally in reserve because out of fear that what's really going on inside you will alienate or frighten your children. Um, Then you're just simply a performer and you're all mask. And of course, you know, no parent who can be that for real is, is doing that. I hope nor even if you're the most well-adjusted affirmative personality type, does it make sense to introduce your kids to your entire adult self? So, you live that dance moment to moment. And that's what that character is living. He wants to show himself to his daughter as a way of being emotionally real and present to her, especially as he may have some kind of 
intimation that this is um, their last meaningful time together, any time together. And I just, I thought that was just beautifully depicted, Dana. I understand what the movie is missing. I don't think it would have worked better if it had been there. Well, Steve, I mean, hearing that you were so emotionally moved and engaged and identified with the the Paul Mescal character, I'm kind of, you know, my, my criticism is taken out of my mouth. Because if this movie works emotionally on you, then you should see it. It's, you know, as I say, like, what is wrong with it has nothing to do with the two wonderful performances from these two actors and their relationship, which I think both on and off screen seems to have been something real, right? I mean, there's scenes of playfulness that remind me exactly of the way my daughter plays with her dad, right? Just teasing each other, riffing weirdly on, you know, the thing about whose head is bigger between the two of them. It's just exactly the way (laughs) girls and dads, right, would goof around with each other. And so to me, everything that doesn't quite come together has to do with, with the script just needing a little bit more tightening, a little bit more clarification. It is not that I want some sort of leaden explanation of exactly what it all means. But for example, I would take out all of the present day scenes. I don't think we need to see the grown up Sophie. She's on screen for probably less than five minutes of the movie as a grown up. And I never made the connection of what we're supposed to know about her grown up self that wouldn't have been better just from the point of view of the kid. If you're going to make a movie about what a kid can't know about their parent, which I agree is a large part of what this movie is trying to do, why go forward into the future? Yeah, and that, uh, it's an interesting note about the adult Sophie. I think she's turning 31, right? Like she's she's found herself moving beyond the past where she, we, we think, lost her dad in some fashion or other. Um, I think it's different to be a child trying to understand your dad and being an adult remembering yourself as a child trying to understand your dad in the face of, of some unspoken enormous loss. So uh, I, I, I liked the glimpses of adult self. And I liked that they were only glimpses because the heart of the film is this relationship. I will say also, Frankie Corio, what astonishing performance. I mean, it's always hard to know with a kid actor, you know, what, what will become of them, but damn, that seems like a performer to watch just so compelling and naturalistic and, and wise and everything you want in a face on screen. And I will also say, I will watch anything that Charlotte Wells does. I, I, I was so impressed with the subtlety of the storytelling here, and I'm excited to see what it is that she does next. Completely agree. Even though even though I didn't love everything about this movie as much as you two did, Charlotte Wells is an exciting new presence. It's a great debut movie to burst onto the scene with, and her way of working with actors alone, her touch with the, with those two and their relationship is is a reason to keep her keep your eye on her. Here, here. Okay, once again, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Shoot us an email. Let's move on. Okay, well, What Was Brangelina is a remarkable piece of cultural reporting and criticism in Vulture. It's by Angelica Jade Bastian, who joins us now to talk about it. She writes, As a couple, Pitt and Jolie offered what all great stars do, a fantasy as out of reach as it is alluring. In their decade-long union, they transformed from a lasciviously adulterous, sexed-up power couple to a more gently constructed, philanthropic team defined as much by their capacity for good as their astounding beauty and talent. Until the fantasy cracked in 2016, we are gratefully joined by uh, Angelica Jade Bastian. Uh, Angelica, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. You've achieved the Valhalla of cultural journalism here. It's juicy <laughs> and low, and it's beautifully constructed and important and high at the same time. It has consistency and juice. Uh, it's a terrific piece. Um, where to start? I love I love that you set up that stardom was different back then, that the heyday of their stardom was the last you could argue, gasp of a sort of golden age of Hollywood where stars were remote and huge, sort of pre-social media, and their breakup has been post-social media. Talk a little bit about them as a couple and how it got publicly constructed and now is being publicly deconstructed. Well, I'll say this about them as a couple. They were a couple I followed very obsessively, which is why there is so much historical research in this piece that just came from off the top of my dome and from magazines I already owned. 
so it was a really interesting case study, so to speak, on both stardom and misogyny and the ways that we project onto stars in a multitude of ways. Because for me, I operate under the belief that a great star functions in the same way that the gods of Greek mythology do. They're supposed to represent sort of an outsized version of very human desires and needs. And so that really propelled me when it came to writing this admittedly very long, very taxing piece. Um, And it means a lot to hear that it really resonates with people and people felt that it has a very sustaining, powerful, engrossing narrative because that's what I was aiming for. So we're now in the sort of dreary public undoing the kind of recriminatory phase of their relationship, which echoes in a general way. I mean, I don't want to overemphasize this, but it's ugly in the direction of Depp and Heard in ways that just blow up what they once were. Maybe talk just a little bit about the kind of newsy aspect of that, what we what we now know, courtesy of lawsuits and counter lawsuits. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, because one thing I fought for in the piece was not to mention those two at all. Because I was like, that brings a level of baggage that the Brangelina relationship and its aftermath already has. And I don't need to bring in all of that extra junk that comes with the mention of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Yeah. Um, For Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, what's been interesting with the aftermath of their relationship is just watching how, despite the severity of what Brad has been accused of, and despite the severity of certain lawsuits he's going through, he's like Teflon. Nothing sticks to him. Versus Angelina, who I think now is in a very weird place in both career and star image, where she has not been able to sever herself from that image of them as a couple as successfully as he has. And I think it's really bringing up people's issues with her that have existed since the beginning, which to me comes back to a very misogynistic belief that she's this, you know, devious other woman who, you know, wrecked his life. And he's just the man that just got caught in the middle of it. How did this happen? I'm a man with no autonomy somehow, all of a sudden. Um, So it's been very tricky having to think through how to discuss that because the lawsuits and the back and forth is very vicious and very tangled and requires a level of care and research and honesty, I think, as a journalist. But also you can't tell the audience what to feel. I can only present you with this information and hope you take from it the lesson that I was taking from it, which is, wow, misogyny. Um, (laughs) Older than ever and still here. I respect your decision to try to keep Johnny Depp and Amber Heard out of the story, but I did. The thing I found most revelatory about your piece is that it forced me to confront my own misogynistic response to this couple which I also followed them avidly in the aughts. And um, I don't know, just been rooting for Brad. Loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What a great performance. Wow, finally got his Oscar. Good for him. Man, he's aging well. And haven't thought that much about Angelina other than, oh God, everything she's accusing is really problematic for how much I'm enjoying the Brad's late acting and producing career, um, which is not really a reasonable response to what she has alleged. Um, And I I think you do a wonderful job in the piece kind of putting a, putting a point on that. Um, And, and it made me think too about what kinds of careers we allow women in Hollywood as they get older to have um, and the sort of, you know, do-gooding philanthropist who also, make some movies sometimes is a role that we do accept. But if the philanthropy, the the philanthropic front of their union falls apart, where does that leave us with her? Um, I don't know. It really left me considering my own response and, and the pervasiveness of misogyny underlying it. That was the point. (laughs) And I'm glad that worked. (laughs) I guess my question to you is, 
did you come at it as you've been watching the last few years? Were you on to him all along, <laughs> or like, or were you like watching uh, all of us get swept off by the the golden glow of middle aged Brad and thinking, <laughs> God damn it, I got to write about this someday? Or were you also swept off your feet a little bit, and only upon digging back in did you start to reexamine? Well, I think for me, I've always been really good at taking a nuanced view of stars and understanding, oh, this is an image they're crafting. This is not a human being that I'm actually interacting with and know and and joking with. But that intimacy is what has led Brad to be so successful in ways that Angelina is struggling with somewhat. For me, it was more so oh, I really enjoyed this man's work, but why is no one talking about some of his issues? For example, my family's from New Orleans, so I've heard for eons about how bad the Make It Right homes were and the problems with them. And for those who don't know, Make It Right was an organization Brad Pitt began and really promoted to help uh, New Orleans, specifically the Lower Ninth Ward, which is a predominantly black neighborhood in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, building homes and helping people out. And it became very apparent to people on the ground in New Orleans that there was lots of issues with the homes with mold and rotting and just improperly made and really caused a lot of material harm for the black citizens in New Orleans in that neighborhood. And I found it rather stunning that like no one talks about those issues, even though a lawsuit was settled because of them. And so as things just kept adding up and more information kept coming out, especially in the last few months, it's really this year that there's been more clarity on what happened in 2016 on the plane incident, it just became undeniable for me that, oh, when you look at it through the lens of these are images these people are creating, you start to become more aware of just how manipulative a great star can be with their audience. Angelica, because you just mentioned image making and image manipulation, I wanted you to go back to that, uh, the photo shoot that came out in 2005 in W Magazine and maybe talk about the image making you see at work in that photo spread, maybe describe the photos a bit compared to what you see uh, Angelina and Brad doing in their own separate lives now with media, where they are also having carefully managed and groomed photo shoots to project different kind of images of themselves on their own. Yeah. What is interesting about that photo shoot is it really leans into the sort of transgressive thrill that really captured people's interest with their relationship as it was allegedly born of adultery, which I'm going to be honest, like, I do not care about cheating. Like, y'all want to cheat? Cheat. I don't give a damn. It's not my relationship. Why should I care? I think America's obsession with adultery is sad, um, to be honest. But I see why people were really interested in that photo shoot in particular, because they look gorgeous. And it's, you know, this image of like white suburban rich malaise and their debt to the nines and they're drinking and and they have all these little blonde children around them. And it's it's a it's a really interesting photo shoot to look at now because it's not exalting this like necessarily wholesome image of an imaginary couple that they're playing out so much as showing the cracks in a beautiful couple, which is now defines their aftermath in a lot of ways. And what's interesting with Brad is he's become very, very good in the last few years post their divorce announcement with slightly adjusting his image so he seems more tactile and slightly more approachable, even though he really is not, versus Angelina, who I think has not been able to craft a strong new image for herself in part because she's still associated with the philanthropy that people really associated with them as a couple. And two, her images aren't as strong and speaking to anything with any depth, in part because her star image on screen is in a very liminal space right now. Because 
none of her movies recently have really popped off for people. And that is the first way a star gets into people's imagination by what they're doing on screen. And for Angelina, I wrote about it in the piece. She's a star who always was a, was rooted in making her private life public in a way that really fascinated people. And when she's no longer living her private life in public, who is she? And I don't think audiences have an answer quite yet beyond she's a very dedicated mother and philanthropist, but that's not enough to sustain a star and our interest in them. I think one thing that seems so hard about the position she's in, I mean, we haven't quite said what the accusations are that came out in, I think, 2016 and that have been further fleshed out uh, in the course of some of these recent lawsuits and which perhaps will get even further fleshed out in some countersuits that Pitt is now filing. Um, but the the core accusation is that while drunk on a plane, Brad Pitt was violent with Angelina Jolie and um, she alleges with their children, some of their children. Uh, he, of course, denies those allegations, but that's a pretty shocking thing for the American movie-going public to stomach. And it's also an experience that feels at odds in some ways with the image she's projected, right? She seemed all along very in control of her image as the sort of wild child and the um, the transgressive uh, vampiress that who became the globe-trotting, uh, you know, do-gooder, um, and it, and it's he is assembling a midlife public image in which that never happened, and she's a crazy lady who keeps saying this thing happened that he claims did not, and she I think has had trouble assimilating this accusation into her own public image, right? Like she seems caught in the swamp of it um, in a way that is completely reasonable if if what she's alleging is true. Uh, she should be fighting this hard for custody of her kids and she has every right to be adopting the posture that she's in. But all of those decisions, which are reasonable as a human, maybe make her seem stuck in this thing that as a star, the fan kind of wants her to move beyond. And that's what feels so tragic to me about where she now is. Oh, totally. I don't think women can move on from abuse publicly in the ways men who are accused of it can, which I think says a lot about how we discuss, view, and treat domestic abuse and domestic violence, that women become marked by this as a problem that carries on and then defines the entirety of their image and how we view them, whether we believe them or not, versus Brad, who is dealing with a lot of lawsuits and is dealing with a lot of problems, and yet is just the most carefree, golden, tactile, wonderful star that everyone loves and wants to root for, and seems comfortable with ignoring the fact that there are very serious abuse allegations. It sort of breaks my heart in a lot of ways, because it's like, you know, for as much as people think that feminism or the image of feminism has reshaped how we interact with stars, I don't think it has that much. Um, because people love to stick to these very old, tired scripts about women and power and misogyny that makes them comfortable and feel safe rather than facing the fact that this beloved star is accused of something very heavy. Mm. All right. Well, Angelica, uh, congratulations on, on genuinely a triumph of a piece. It's in Vulture. It's called What Was Brangelina by Angelica Jade Bastian. Really, thanks a lot for coming on the show. And I hope this happens again very soon. Oh, thank you. I'd love that. All right. Now is a moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? Well, we are recording on November 1st. All Saints Day. And since we are getting in on the ground floor of a month, I thought I would endorse something that is starting this month and stretching over the month of November, which is a series on the Criterion channel. I know I'm constantly endorsing things on the Criterion channel, but seriously, if you love this podcast and you're not subscribed to that channel, you're missing so many great movies and so much great curation of movies. So one of the things that they are presenting in November, one of their programs for the month is called Fox Noir. I don't know why exactly that November has become the month associated with noir in the public imagination 
conversation. I know there's always sort of like noir festivals and, you know, noir initiatives and people doing little noir watching jags during this month. Maybe it goes with the the shortening days and the gloomy shadows of November. But Fox Noir looks really great. It's just um, a bunch of 20th century Fox movies from important directors of that genre or who work at times in that genre, including Otto Preminger, uh, Elia Kazan, Samuel Fuller has some movies in it. Um, and just to give you a few of the titles in the Fox Noir lineup over the course of November, and that means that it's streaming, of course, all month long, anytime you want on that channel. Uh, I Wake Up Screaming from 1941. The title alone sells that movie. Fantastic. Laura, one of the great um, noir love stories. Nightmare Alley, the original version of that movie that was remade with Bradley Cooper last year. Um, because we recently talked about Marilyn Monroe and the new movie Blonde, uh, her film Niagara, one of her great kind of noir thrillers is showing uh, in the series as well. And maybe my favorite is uh, Pick Up on South Street, a Sam Fuller movie from 1953 that is just one of the nastiest, dirtiest noir crime thrillers <laughs> you could imagine. Uh, there's plenty of others, but yes, um, everything about Fox Noir, including the introduction by the great critic Imogen Sarah Smith, who, which she recorded for the channel, is something that I plan to dig into during the month of November. Uh, that is awesome. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I have a slightly odd endorsement today, but it's just so good. I have to share it. Um, if you are a denizen of the internet, you will find that the internet is constantly trying to sell you underwear. I think we on this show may have at various points read ads trying to sell you underwear, but people really seem to think they can disrupt underwear. And I don't really know why. And I've been kind of an un internet underwear skeptic. Until now, when I have discovered a brand called Nikki, it's spelled like knickers, but E-Y, K-N-I-C-K-E-Y, um, and they just make the perfect underpant, the high-waisted <laughs> brief or whatever it is. They also make a bunch of other stuff that I haven't tried, but it's just like, finally, the platonic underpant has been designed, the, the disruptors have been disrupted. It's cotton, it's stretchy, it's high-waisted, it holds its shape, it's not too tight, it comes in great colors. It's excellent. The Nikki high-waisted underpant. That's my recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, you have struck me speechless once again. Uh, I, it's just too good. I don't usually talk about undergarments on this show, but <laughs> I feel a duty every week to share the thing that has given me the most joy and truly the discovery of this underwear. Uh, it's, it's a joy sparker, so... Give it a whirl. Oh, dear. Fair enough. Okay. The thing that's given me most joy, um, second only to my underwear, is uh, the Richard Wilbur poem, <laughs> Castles and Distances, from 1950. I love this poem. I was just in the mood for Wilbur. I hadn't read his poetry in so long, and I found one I'd never read before. It's so cool. Um, oh, it is hunters alone regret the beastly pain. It is they who love the foe, the quarries out their force and every arrow is feathered soft with wishes to atone. And I think one of the reasons I stayed with this poem and reread it over and over again for a week is Castles and Distances is, in addition to the heart of hunters and, and their relationship with the prey, is um, it, it lords and their relationship with the hunt and thereby their relationship to the world outside their castles, which is just so sadly apposite to modern experience, lords and their castles, right? Like, um, especially with like Elon Musk in the news and the tech barons. And I just love this quote, they built well who made those palaces of hunting lords, the grounds planned as ruled reaches, always with a view down tapered aisles of trees at last to fade in the world's mass. The lords so knew of land beyond their land, i.e. they didn't. So it's just the, it's just the classicist Wilbur uh, at his absolute best, uh, uh, classical in theme and preoccupation, but also the perfect, delicate equipoise of, of his work. Say the poem title one more time. Uh, it's called Castles and Distances. You have to dig a little to find it on the internet, but we'll link to it. You can find it on the Poetry Foundation website, but it takes a few somewhat obscure clicks, so we'll uh, we'll provide it for you. Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. 
You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our uh, introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we take a question from listener Shepard, who writes, What's a film that would be improved if two actors switched roles? For example, as much as I love The Devil Wears Prada, I contend that it would be an even better film if Anne Hathaway played the snobbish veteran assistant and Emily Blunt played the out-of-her-depth newcomer. Hathaway is always delicious as a villain or villain-ish, and Blunt's charm and range would, I'd argue, make us root even harder for the Andy character. Would love to hear the panel's thoughts on other hypothetical casting swaps and why they'd improve the film. All right. So interesting to play casting director here. Um, Such a strange art. Steve, give it a whirl. Well... Let me begin by saying there are all these alternate casting universes that are so enticing to the imagination. So it's a fun question to think through. So the most, I think, interesting and famous example is that originally Ronald Reagan was cast as the lead in Casablanca, um, which is just so horrific to contemplate. (laughs) 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 So uh, it can be kind of fun. I mean, mean, you know, you could switch... um, Berkman and uh, Bogart in that movie, right? And that would be fascinating. She's this like soulful proprietress and um, and he's the kind of American innocent. Um, you know, she's the European woman, quintessential European woman of experience. And, and Bogart is this kind of naif who um, discovers his uh, uh, inner... Uh, cosmopolitan and his hatred of fascism in this quintessentially cosmopolitan space of, uh, you know, Elsa's cafe. But, um, you know, the other one, uh, and I have to admit, I kind of cheated a little bit on this one. Someone on the internet suggested that The Fugitive would be a better movie if Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford switched because you'd suddenly have someone who is far more believable as a possible killer maybe a person whose you know deviousness of aspect if not actual character had maybe gotten in the way a little bit he was just too easy a mugshot uh in some sense and the person chasing him was this sort of implacable dragnet type uh in some sense um dana i'm curious is there do you think there are any screamingly obvious ones or are they all sort of mildly perverse I mean, when my mind goes to this, I think more about recasting roles that didn't have the right actor in them than that there was some other actor in that same movie who could have done the role. That's a rare circumstance to come across. But since the listener who wrote in came came up with one that I think really is interesting, The Devil Wears Prada switcheroo, which would have really changed up the movie. uh, Here's another case where there's two, you know, actors roughly of the same generation playing sort of a villain and a hero. I, I guess both the characters are somewhat morally ambigu- ambiguous, but what about in The Departed? Martin Scorsese's The Departed. If Leo and uh, and Matt Damon had switched roles, you know, I'm not sure if that would have made it a better movie. I'm not that crazy about The Departed, but not for the reason that those roles seem miscast. But when you think about uh, how how great Matt Damon was in The Talented Mr. Ripley as this this sneaky, underhanded psychopath, uh, it might have been interesting to see him in the Leo role, which is the more, the less idealistic, I guess, at least at the beginning of those two characters, and to see in turn what Leo DiCaprio would do if he wasn't in his standard kind of role of of the player. You know, it's been a while since I saw The Departed, and probably people are going to tell me I'm getting those two characters completely wrong, but as I remember, it was sort of the moral valence was slightly in Matt Damon's direction. And to switch that back might have made it a, a little bit of a, of a more unexpected casting choice. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Dana, that recasting seems like an easier place for your mind to go than finding a movie where actually the roles should be literally 
swapped. Um, it reminded me of that Broadway production of True West uh, from the early aughts where Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley um, alternated roles throughout the run, which is sort of like the whole stunt of it was that each person knew the work so deeply they could do the other person's role. But one thing I do think about here is the role of the sidekick in the romantic comedy, which as we've discussed, romantic comedies are are dying. And although we had differing opinions about reboot, and I'm like still like Elon Musk coming to Twitter, I am still processing Dana's assertion that Reboot is great and Andor sucks uh, and and reckoning with a world in which she believes that to be true. <laughs> I never said um, Andor sucked. I thought it was a little okay. overhyped. Fine, fine. Um, but I think we all agreed that the Judy Greer portions of Reboot uh, were pretty fucking great. So I found myself searching for films in which Judy Greer played a second or third or fourth fiddle and thinking about whether... Um, perhaps she could have been our main focus. But Dana, tell us a little bit more about how you think about casting as a movie critic, because to me, it feels like the most important, most ineffable, most hard to predict kind of creative decision making in how a project goes from a script to a fully realized creative work that we have an emotional response to. Um, and, you know, my husband sometimes has to review audition tapes, uh, you know, on his laptop and I'll walk by in the background and, you know, you just see these different potential versions of the character and the project, like, and, and it's always strikes me as impossible to figure out like who's going to be good and how are they going to grow in the role and how's the role going to grow around them? I mean, it's just, it's such a mysterious part of this craft. And I'm curious what prompts you in thinking about a project that you're reviewing to think, I wonder if this would have been better with someone else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a Monday morning quarterback kind of thing to do because once a project is cast, it is what it is, right? But you can always reconstruct that dream movie that could have been. And just this week in talking about After Sun, right? There's a movie that completely rides on the strength of its casting. You know, and whatever critiques I have of the movie have nothing to do with that. And it's one thing that I think Charlotte Wells got 100% right, casting those two people and working with them in the way that she did. I think something that grieves me as a critic looking at how different projects are cast is just how beholden most projects of any size have to be to having some name actor in the cast, you know? And I think of this as well as the parent of an aspiring actor, you know, who has tried out for things before and come this close to getting them and then not gotten them because she's an unknown, you know, essentially. Um, I mean, who knows? Who knows what decisions go into various casting choices? But, you know, it's it seems very common that producers, creators have to say, look, we need to go with this person who has more experience and, and more of a profile so that other people will sign on so that we can create this critical mass to this project and get it moving forward. And I just bet, Julia, that, you know, when you're when those those casting tapes are rolling in the background, that you're hearing people who, you know, could have just could have turned the industry upside down with their amazing talent, but they're not getting cast because they're not there yet. They're not to the place where their name is um, is going to provide visibility for the project. So it's one of the many ways that I, I wish that money and power and, you know, everything being a juggernaut at the box office did not have to rule movies so that there could be more unknown voices coming out of the, the woodwork. Yeah. I, let me jump in and just say, you know, Fully prejudicially, I think every movie since Risky Business would have been better had Tom Cruise not been cast in it. Um, but <laughs> even Top Gun Maverick, you're crazy. <laughs> you're a lunatic. This is worse than Dana liking reboot. I know. I know. I knew I would get that reaction, and I did. I'm so pleased. But um, I, I, uh, but I mean, the grossest. Uh, act of Tom Cruise miscasting was uh, uh, when he p was cast as Jack Reacher. And, you know, these books are beautifully executed by a very literarily suave writer, adolescent male fantasies. Like Jack Reacher, the defining thing about Jack Reacher, you know it right from the beginning of virtually every one of those books. He is six foot six. He is tall he's physically <laughs> large and he that's why he can reach things and, and he, <laughs> six, 
exactly <laughs> the top shelf. I love it. Jack. Get my cereal, Jack. Yeah, 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 Jack. I can't reach the Rice Krispies. Um, additionally, he uh, can kick absolutely anybody's ass. And, um, and to, I mean, Cruz, listen, I'm sure I'm not much taller than Tom Cruise. I mean, there's no disrespect to men who are under six feet tall. Like, more power to him. He's the biggest, has been the biggest movie star in the world for 30 plus years, more, um, at whatever height he is. And it's been fine, but he just is not a man of stature. And of course, it's just that kind of, I'll take that one, please, egomania, where Cruise, Inc., steps in and plucks the role of Jack Reacher for himself and those movies more or less bombed. And the TV show has been pitched as a, you know, frank rectification of that. I mean, they, they got a, you know, physically large imposing man to play Reacher. Um, but how about this one? Let me bait you one more time, Julia. How about Val Kilmer and uh, Tom Cruise switch roles in the original Top Gun, making it a marginally less stupid film? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I'll allow it. I'll allow it. I'll go for that. The you're res, you're resisting my bait. That was really good. <laughs> I mean, as long well, as we're just, talking about self casting as a vanity project, what about Ben Affleck not playing so many lead roles in movies? <laughs> I mean, the movie Argo, which is annoying because it won an Oscar, but is a pretty good movie overall. Was lots of fun, and I remember liking it at the time. And the weakest point in that movie is Ben Affleck, the director, playing the main character. He's much better as a director of that movie than he he is as an actor in it, and is really kind of inert and ultimately takes away from the total value of the movie. You know, so I think there's there are lots of moments like that too, where somebody with a big name it's the obverse of what i was saying a moment ago right somebody with a big name who gets themselves cast in a role can be both the weak link in a movie artistically and the thing that makes it financially possible for it to be made yeah i think fame and the ability to get things made probably are interesting and important factors although in observing my husband's work they're they're far from the only factors and that's i think what what i find most fascinating is not the not the casting of the anchor for the project, but all of the different supplemental roles where the fame level is the same across the board. And it's just a question of like, which version of the role do you want to embody? It just feels like the moment where, where Frankenstein like lurches up off the table and comes into reality. And it, it's just such a fascinating and unusual art. Um, well, a great question. I would submit it to our listeners to send in their swap answers. I'm not sure we came up with one that's better than Emily Blunt and Annie Hathaway for Devil Wears Prada. Um, contact us at culturefestedslate.com. Uh, and thank you so much, Slate Plus members, for supporting our show and the journalism Slate does. We'll see you next week.